Welcome to That Said. I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we will be speaking with Princeton University Professor Eddie Gloud, Jr. Professor Gloud is the James S. McDonnell Distinguished University Professor and Chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University. He is a frequent commentator on MSNBC, and his latest book entitled Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Our Time is a must read. Professor Cloud, welcome to That Said. It is my pleasure. I'm, I'm so excited about the conversation. Me too. So can we start by you telling us a little bit about your journey from rural Mississippi to, to Princeton University? Because it's a great story, I think. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, blessed, kismet, however we want to describe it, right? So I'm a country boy from the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, born in a small town. Uh, named after the moss that dangled from magnolia trees. So it's Moss Point, Mississippi. Um, grew up in a working class household. My dad was the uh, second African-American hired at, at the post office in Pascagoula, Mississippi, uh, after leaving Vietnam. And uh, I guess, you know, working at the post office allowed us to, to live a, a middle class life. Um, my mother had her first baby in the ninth grade, though. And so uh, there were four of us. My sister, all of us were precocious. My sister was the valedictorian of her high school, uh, the first black valedictorian. And so they made two. They had two valedictorians, one white and one black. She went to Spelman and I followed to Morehouse. And it was from there that my world just opened up. Um, and then, you know, just making my way from Morehouse to Temple to Princeton. Um, I got to Princeton by way of uh, a conference that Cornell West heard, heard me delivering a paper and asked me to come come study with him. And, and everything has been charmed ever since. It's been amazing. And Cornell West, famously now just resigning from Harvard, and, and we'll talk about him and, and what's going on there, and perhaps even Nicole Hannah-Jones, because it sure. fits into what we're, we're talking about. But maybe the best way to start is to ask you, why did you decide to write this book? You've been studying Baldwin a long time, 30 yeah. years. Why now? So my initial thought was to kind of write an intellectual biography of Jim, right? Yeah, I've been right. He had been so important to my thinking for so long. I was going to kind of finally bring him from backstage, you know, just kind of bring him up front. Uh, but the archive wasn't lending itself to, to me saying anything that I thought was new. And, um, because most of the letters have been embargoed for the next 30 years. Uh, and then I found myself after Trump was elected saying in a kind of somber tone, they've done it again, right? We've come out of Black Lives Matter and all of these young folk have risked their lives, many of whom were dying in Ferguson, suicide, uh, questionable circumstances. And the country doubled down on this ugliness and I remember saying to myself, you know, I know Jimmy had, Baldwin had gone through something like this, right? Where the country had turned its back on the promise of the civil rights movement. Um, and he had to figure out how to pick up the pieces. So I was, I was despairing in some ways. And so I reached for Baldwin as uh, a kind of resource to help me say something about the moment. And to say something to those young people who had risked everything 
And then the country decided to elect Trump, you know. So, yeah, that's why I decided to write. But what was interesting to me was your take on Baldwin was, uh, you call him Jimmy, Jimmy, help me, in a sense, help me understand these times. Point me in your writings where I can go to find inspiration, consolation, understanding of, of, of my, my times. Is that right? Is- exactly. I mean, you know, that moment where Baldwin says that maybe someone will move about, will move about the ruins of his work and find something useful. You know, to my mind, Baldwin is perhaps the most insightful critic we have ever produced when it comes to the issue of race and democracy. He's an inheritor of Ralph Waldo Emerson in a sense, right? Trying to think about who do we take ourselves to be in light of this contradiction that always threatens to snuff out, right, the democratic light. Um, And he had been speaking over a lifetime about this contradiction. And here we are in our own moment, in our own time, grappling with it. You know, the serpent that threatens to swallow the thing whole uh, has reared its head again. And so I, I, I didn't want to write about him at this point, I wanted to write with him. And so it, it was this kind of, okay, let, let me express my own hubris and say, I could write with Baldwin about our moments, you know? And, and, and so, you know, what resulted was this book, you know, begin again. And what's so interesting is that Baldwin sort of developed a perspective on America from France he he left America, and it's from that elsewhere point that he's able to look at America critically and develop his own sort of take on things. You, similarly, at the outset of this book, are in Germany, right? Yeah. And, and so, and, and you even travel to Baldwin's French home, mm-hmm. um, and you say, aha, right? You have this aha moment. Yeah. From outside the United States. I, yeah, I knew I wanted, you know, I had made the decision that I wanted to write with Baldwin about our moment, but I didn't have the hook. I had already signed this contract, I'm, you know, two years ago. I'm a year in and not one sentence has been written, you know. So I, I, I'm, I'm initially I'm in St. Thomas and Hurricane Maria blew me back to, to the United States. I knew I had to write the book begin the book elsewhere. I knew I needed to start it outside of the United States to get some distance from the madness, to not have to be obligated to, 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 to interpret the drums on MSNBC every day. So I needed to get out of the, you know, the white noise to think about it. And so after Hurricane Maria blew me back, I got this opportunity to, 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 to lecture uh, uh, at Heidelberg, you know, place where Hegel taught and, you know, Forbach and all of this stuff, right? So I'm not in Heidelberg. I'm, I'm in the old Alstadt, the old city. I'm not in this old city for an hour. And I hear that I'm going to get my train pass, actually. And I hear this, you know, blood-curdling scream. And I look, I follow the eyes of the bystanders. And lo and behold, four or five white police officers have their knee, knees in the back and the neck of this black man. Um, and he's screaming bloody, you know, bloody hell, bloody mother, you know, 
And I'm like, wow. And the one thing I didn't have to do is I didn't have to go on television and explain it. So I went back to my flat and just started writing. And I knew I had the hook then. And much of the introduction um, was written in that moment. And then I decided to fly over to St. Paul de Vance to, to see Jimmy's old spot. I knew that it had been demolished. They were building, you know, uh, you know, um, luxury condominiums in the spot, but I wanted to see it for myself. And it was, you know, startling that even his own elsewhere, his respite, right. Could not, uh, survive, uh, the, the relentless march of capital, you know, um, and, and the, everything just started coming together at that moment, you know. Yeah, it's, it's great. It, uh, I, and I said to you before we, in the green room, if you will, <laughs> it took me a long time to, to read what is a, a short, but it very powerful book. And that introduction, um, I think took me a week, um, because there was so much to think about so much that you articulate and then flesh out in, in the book. And, and, and so I'd like to start at working our way through the book, um, if, if we can. And I think central to and maybe foundational to this um, analysis of yours and Baldwin's is what you each refer to as the lie. Um, the idea of America, you each right in your own words, is an outright lie. Um, it's foundational and undergirds so much of what is going on today and so much about your writing. So maybe we can talk about the, the lies, so understand what it is that, that we're talking about. Sure. So, you know, there's this formulation that Baldwin uh, uh, draws on in, or makes in an essay he wrote in 1964 entitled The White Problem. And I'll paraphrase him here. He said, you know, the Christians who founded the country had a fatal flaw. Right? They, they sought to build a democracy, but they held, they held these chattel. And they had to give an account of the role of this, these chattel in their lives. And what they said is that they weren't men and women, that these chattel were not human beings. Uh, because if they were not human beings, Baldwin says, um, then no crime would have been committed. And then here's the line, that line is the basis of our present trouble. So the American ideology is this, this story, this uh, mythos, that this myth that we tell ourselves that we are a shining city on the hill, an example of democracy achieved. And part of what that does, it, it hides and obscures, right, uh, the things that we've done in order to make the country possible. The idea that certain people are valued more than others and others are treated with generalized disregard. And there's a general architecture that allows for our evils to be distorted and disfigured so that we can affirm our goodness, our inherent goodness, and our innocence. So what Baldwin wants to suggest, and what I take up, is that this line keeps us from confronting who we actually are, what we've done, right? And it distorts and disfigures our history. And every time we find an opportunity or face an opportunity uh, to actually imagine ourselves differently, we reassert the lie that we are wholly innocent, that we are 
an example of the shining city on the hill, the redeemer nation, um, and all of this other stuff, right, are just exceptions, right? They're not the rule, as it were. Um, and Baldwin wants us to recenter, you see. Um, and what does it mean to begin there? Um, uh, and how does that then reorient us to the story we tell about who we are? You write uh, so eloquently, I think, you say of the lie, this is the mechanism that allows and always has allowed America to avoid facing the truth about its unjust treatment of black people, and it deforms the soul of our country. The lie cuts deep into the American psyche. It secures our national innocence in the face of the ugliness and the evil we have done. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the problem isn't us. The problem is them. That right. they have, that we lack intelligence, that we're animalistic, uh, that we don't have the capacity to bear the burdens of citizenship, that we're lustful, that we're sinful, right? So all of this is, in some ways, these are justifications for the treatment of folk. Right. Of human beings. Even there's one moment um, in South Carolina as African, African-American, uh, African-Americans who are enslaved are converting to Christianity. The, the priest is ask, asks the enslaved, are you giving your life over to Christ because you want to be free? Or because you want to give your life over to Christ? Right. right? So to give you the depth of the pathology. But it gets displaced onto black folk. And we have to tell ourselves this story. And that story about our incapacity, black folks' incapacity to carry forth the burdens of citizenship justifies our second-class status in the country. And we see it ongoing even today. Right. And and, But the, the line of it that it secures our national innocence, it, it allows... Me as a as a white person to say, as you just said, it's not on me, yeah. right? It's not not on me. And I think that maybe it's safe to say, in light of the debate that's going on with critical race theory, is that we're sort of in a history's war. We're we're, we're the the two sides, if you will, in this uncivil war, as Don Lemon calls it are fighting for one side fighting for the truth and one side is fighting for the maintain maintenance of the lie. And, and that's, that's where we, that's what our after time is. That's where our fight has been joined. Are we going to tell the truth or are we going to continue this lie that allows us to maintain our national innocence and, and, sense of, you know, the American psyche that we're the shining um, hill. I think that's so right. We're living and we're witnessing in real time the reassertion of the lie. Um, There is this, um, since, you know, critical race theory, these folks aren't really interested in in whether they got that right or not. Their, Their aim is to simply arrest any significant or substantive change, to to hold off the idea that we could be a genuinely multiracial democracy. Um, this battle over public history, over public memory, 
right, matters because there are those among us who have never committed themselves to the idea that all men and women are created equal. They fundamentally refuse that truth claim. Um, and, and the sad part about it is that we've coddled them for much of our history. Right. We have W.E.B. Du Bois saying that if we don't get our facts right, if we don't lay out in honest terms, history is just agreed upon lies. And and that's where I think we are. And you see it so sort of blatantly in school textbooks. And and perhaps this is where, you know, well, critical race theory is really at the higher levels of academia being debated, really at the at, at the high school textbook level that the that this lie is as clearly perpetrated as any place else in society, as far as I can see from reading them. Well, absolutely. I was taught the Civil War in such a way uh, in the eighth grade. Um, and I love Miss Mitchell, but I was taught it in such a way that that Stonewall Jackson was a hero of mine. Can you can you imagine? You know, um, or you know, in Texas text, textbooks where slaves aren't described as slaves but as workers. I mean, what is that, right? Or you have these uh, uh, redactions that just took place in, in, in legislation passed by the Senate in Texas. Um, where uh, they no longer des- describe the Klan in a negative way. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. But du Bois is making this point in an S in, in a chapter in his book on Black Reconstruction titled "The Propaganda of History," and he's responding to uh, Dunning, the Dunning School, and the Dunning School is this professor out of Dunning, who, Professor Dunning, who comes out of Columbia. He's not in the South, but this is the first. These are the first histories of Reconstruction and the historiography of Reconstruction, right, in this early period has at its core that these Black people were at the heart of the demise of American democracy. They were corrupt. They were uh, incompetent. um, And this was the reason why uh, the South was made, was occupied and made backward and, and the like. So this particular historical claim is at the heart of the lost cause. Um, and, you know, just recently, um, you know, we saw on the, in, in the opinion pages of the New York Times, uh, uh, Charles Blow and declaring that the lost cause is not dead or Annette Gordon-Reed, a professor at Harvard, at law and professor of history, right? Declaring that the lost cause is still alive, right? And of course, the lost cause is a lie at its core. It is. And um, it's interesting. Baldwin gave us a way of thinking about it. You gave us a way of thinking about it, which is, you know, people think of history. I think it was uh, Kelly, uh, General Kelly, uh, when being asked about what was going on with monuments and stuff. He says, well, you know, that's sort of that's sort of the past. That's sort of that's sort of history. You know, and let let you know it, let it be, let it remain in the past. Baldwin says, the past is not the past. History is literally present in all we all we do. We carry our history with us. You write one way to think about the difference between the competing accounts of a, an historical moment, like taking down a monument or something, is to ask ourselves 
how the past reflects our current commitments and what kind of world that past commend us to now. Isn't that it? Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, whenever there is a kind of change in regime that we've seen over the course of world history, Mike, what have we witnessed? You know, the first thing that folk do is that they, 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 they shift the iconography, right? How many times has the calendar started over in France, right? I mean, when we think about, right, how they begin, right? So, or, or we see Stalin's statues fall or, or Saddam Hussein's statues fall, right? Here we have this moment where literally a region rebels. They, they become traitors to the union. And over 600,000 people are left dead as a result. And their monuments dot the landscape. And they don't dot the landscape because of any commitment to history. It's actually a, an, a kind of form of epistemic terror. Because those monuments are built during a period when Jim Crow is being consolidated in the region or being challenged. So much of this stuff comes about as a way to declare that the nation is white, that that white supremacy reigns, that Anglo-Saxonism ought to be the ideology of the nation. And so the idea that that General Kelly and others would want to just simply reduce this to just simply the facts of the matter, right, that's just another feature of the lie that protects our innocence, it seems to me. Exactly. This guise of the nostalgia of simpler times is the lie. It's the current version of the lie. This is our history. And as you point out, it's hard to walk around modern Germany and see monuments to um, the Gestapo, Hitler, (laughs) Goering, Goebbels, that was their history too, but it's something about which they are not proud and which is now criminal to, to address. Whereas we, you know, sort of romanticize it because as you said earlier, it goes to the psyche of white America to say, we're not so bad. Exactly. Leave us, leave us be. Exactly. And. For Baldwin, Mike, it also speaks to a kind of immaturity, a kind of refusal to grow up. Because the innocence, right, Baldwin wants to align it with, right, um, this perpetual adolescence. And for him, you know, uh, you know, perpetual adolescence is another way of describing, you know, corruption of the soul. Right. Like we just refuse to grow up as a nation. So much so that we elected an adolescent in 2016. And look right. where we are. Yeah. What, what's interesting to me, what was so interesting to me in, in your book, as you write it in your own words and as Baldwin wrote it in his words, was the notion of the examined life. And um, yeah. Baldwin relying on um, Socrates, I guess, um, says that the unexamined life is not worth living. And perhaps you can talk a little bit about the, the examined life, what it means, um, you know, sort of definitionally and, and 
how it informed your thinking in this book and and Baldwin, because it, it does address this question of the refusal to to examine the life and the lie um, of America today. Yeah, you know, the examined life is a sign of maturity, to go back to the earlier point. Baldwin wants to to argue, and I think he's absolutely right here, that the messiness of the world, the messiness of our social arrangements, is actually a reflection of the messiness of our interior lives. Right? That, that, that the evils of the world actually reflect our refusal to deal with us. Right, you know, when he's when he's in the South, he's like, these people are lying to themselves every day, right? And no wonder the world is so their world is so full of horror, right? That they're not wanting to admit what they're doing under the cover of night with all of these light skinned black folk running around here with green eyes, like in my family and the like, right? And so Baldwin wants to say that in order to say anything about the world anything critical about the world that we live in, we first have to deal with the messiness that's in us. So, and that was really hard for me because I had to deal with my own wound and trauma. I had to figure out, you know, I had to admit that I'm a wounded little boy with daddy issues. And as a precondition to say anything about the world, I had to deal with my own pain. And it seems to me that Baldwin's insistence on that as a pre precondition for growing up is 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 embedded or is a riff on Emerson. Emerson Ralph Waldo Emerson says that you have to acknowledge a self in order to leave it behind. If you don't accept who you are, there's no way you're going to be able to reach for a higher self. You're going to be stuck right where you are. So Baldwin will insist that in order for us to be otherwise we have to accept who we are. That doesn't mean resign ourselves to forever being that. But you can't lie about who you are. And so the unexamined life is not worth living, or that Socratic dictum um, is a precondition to growing up, it seems to me. Exactly. I think that's right. Baldwin writes that the country reflects our inner selves. And I think it's, I couldn't find the quote, but you have it in there. It's a wonderful quote. It is, in talking about America, a place at once so free, yet so bound, always present, but never found. Oh, that's me. That's you. I could, well, that's <laughs> why I couldn't find the quote. There you have it. Talk, it's a great quote. It's yeah, a great quote. There you are. You, you, you. <laughs> Channeled Baldwin so well, I'm thinking that's Baldwin, and it turns out to be you. Yeah, that's me. You know, it's the puzzle. It's the riddle of America, you know. I mean, this is, this, this is, that's my way of rendering, you know, the riddle of the Sphinx here, right? This place at once so free, yet so bound, always present, but never found, you know. The idea of America is so ever-present, so uh, overwhelming. It saturates everything, but it's so elusive. Um, and it has, it's so elusive precisely because we don't want to admit what it actually is. And so Never Found is that is a riff for me on Ralph Ellison's uh, um, formulation in Invisible Man that on the lower frequencies, we speak for you. That, you know, at, 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 at the elemental level, this place 
America is so complicated, so rich that these categories of black and white, these racial, this, 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 this race doesn't come close to mapping on to that which produced the blues, that which produced Jimi Hendrix guitar, that which produced uh, theater, that which makes this place so extraordinary, right? That we can't put our finger on. But nevertheless, uh, we tend to find comfort in our myths and legends. Yeah. The, the benefit of being an examined human being, one who does self-reflection gets us, I think, the next topic I want to talk about, which is if enlightened, if, and it's so interesting to me that Baldwin, again, new things I learned, I didn't realize how religion so informed Baldwin's life, how, how so much of what he talks about is is, is found in Ezekiel and then Revelations and yeah. I mean, you 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 um, sent me to the Bible a dozen <laughs> times to understand um, what, what what was going on here. But but um, this examined life um, takes us to the topic I want to talk next, which is the aftertimes in 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 bearing witness. So if if you have I'll call it a state of consciousness. One of your responsibilities, it seems, is in the times that we live in. Bearing witness in the aftertimes is a critically important part of pushing the ball forward, the pushing the ball of understanding forward, uh, in my view, at least. So, yeah, yeah. So the aftertimes is that period, right? As one world is falling, collapsing, and another world is desperately trying to come into being, right? It's that interregnum, that period where it seems that the door is closing or opening, right? So, you know, I get the, I get the phrase from Walt Whitman's uh, 1871 treatise, Democratic Vistas. And Whitman is writing in the aftermath of the carnage of the Civil War and the dawning of the Gilded Age. And he's, 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 he just, he calls, there's a language, I was looking at it just the other day. He calls it the hollowness of the heart as greed has overrun everything. Um, and this is the consequence. This is what 600,000 have died for. This is what Whitman saw as a nurse, you know, as he walked among the wounded of the Civil War. No, no, no. no. So Whitman is trying to get us to think about the aftertime. So what does it mean to bear witness in a moment of interregnum? when we're between worlds, when something is dying but desperately cleaving to life and, and ugliness is trying to emerge and another world is trying to emerge. Well, to bear witness is to, is to give voice to the suffering, is to allow that suffering to speak. You know, I have to tell this story really quickly. Fern Margie Ekman was Baldwin's first biographer wrote a biography entitled The Furious Passage of James Baldwin. Baldwin, Jimmy hated the book. She tried to psychoanalyze it. It was terrible. Um, but it's full of all of these first-person quotations, right? The interviews are amazing. And I couldn't find them. I mean, they weren't at the Schomburg. They're not with his papers in the Schomburg. They weren't at the Smithsonian. I didn't know where they were. And my writing partner is my colleague, Yamani Perry. 
And so I'm telling Imani about, you know, this treasure trove that's in this biography that's otherwise not very good. And she was like, well, why don't you call her? I said, for Margie Ekman, it has to be about 102. What do you mean? And she just looks at me and, and walks upstairs to her office. And then I get an email five minutes later with a series of numbers in New York. And I dial the first number, and lo and behold, it's Fern Margiek. And it's her hospice worker who then puts me in contact with her niece. I get invited to Manhattan, the Upper West Side. She doesn't have the interviews, but she has at least 100-plus pages of transcriptions. And it's in those transcriptions that Baldwin offers offers an account of what he means by bearing witness. No matter what you've been called to do, no matter what you think, right, you go there. You have to give voice to what you see. You have to allow the suffering to speak. It's an extraordinary moment. I actually quoted in the witness chapter. Um, and so in the after times where we're in between worlds, where the umbilical cord of white supremacy is wrapped around the baby's neck, trying to be born, trying to take its first breath. Right. You have to bear witness. You have to give voice to the suffering that may very well open our eyes and make us better midwives. And you mentioned that Whitman was doing this post-Civil War. Baldwin right. is doing it. Baldwin is doing it post-collapse of the, the, the civil rights movement, the, the murders of Malcolm X and, and Medgar Evers and Dr. King and scores of others. Um, and mm-hmm. that's the time that he finds himself having to, to bear witness. And maybe we could talk a little bit about that, but also what I know was important to you and, and I, I found incredibly important to, to me because you asked yourself in the beginning of this book, how do I not despair? of the times in which we find ourselves. Whitman is bearing witness post-Civil War. And then James Baldwin is bearing witness uh, in the collapse of the, of, the, of the civil rights movement and the murders of, of all its leaders. And you're asking yourself, Donald Trump has just been elected president. I'm in, this is the third, at least the third time round, but the, the, we'll call it the third time round. How do I not, how do I not, despair of this and Baldwin writes a lot about yeah. uh, that and and I think it's important for those of us who still are shaking our heads at how did we get to this point in time at this point in time uh, and not be despairing of it so if you could talk yeah, us I mean, you, just think about it Michael you 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 were old you're you, you were, you're old enough to know a little bit about this um What's the response to King's assassination in April of 1968? Protest. And Nixon. Well, Nixon, right. Twice. Political terms, Nixon twice, followed by Reagan. Followed by Reagan, right? So the response is the hard hat rebellion. It's it's, uh, the riots against school busing, against busing in Boston. It's, it's, the country literally turning its back. And, you know, Baldwin loathed Reagan. He saw what Reagan was doing in California, right? For, for proponents of black power, Reagan is the equivalent of George Wallace, right? He's that notorious. Sure. And so, so 
Baldwin is 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 screaming at the top of his lungs, right? Because everyone is kind of turning their backs on 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 these young folk who who were proponents of black power, not understanding that many of them, you know, I, I I'm I'm fond of saying that Stokely Carmichael Kwame Ture said he never broke nonviolent discipline except for one time. And that's when police attacked King uh, during the march against fear. That many of these young people who were shouting black power and burn baby burn, many of these were the same students who were in Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi and Florida and Texas, right? Risking their lives nonviolently. That these were America's children. And Baldwin refused to turn his back on them, right? And so here we are coming off of the election of the first black president, Barack Obama. Here we are in the midst of this massive movement called Black Lives Matter as these young students, young people are challenging the militarization of the police, which had its origins in the Safe Streets Act of 1968, Lyndon Baines Johnson, right? And then... Which led to to mass incarceration. Led to the carceral state, right? So it's not just a Republican story, right? Um, And then the country doubles down and elects someone grossly unqualified to be the leader of the free world and unleashes all of the ghosts, the ugliness. uh, Everything is now in full view. Um, Baldwin, after King is assassinated, Baldwin tries to commit suicide in 69. He collapses. No Name in the Street is the first book written post-King's assassination. And he called that book, Michael, excuse my language, he called it this mighty motherfucker. Because he was trying to account for what had happened between Brown v. Board and Little Rock and Angela Davis on the cover of Newsweek magazine and Bunchy Carter murdered and, 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 and the like, right? And Attica and Soldat Brothers and the like, right? All of this happened in this compressed period of time, and he witnessed it all. And so, and here I am in this moment. And the only thing I could say over and over again, it wasn't the only thing because I wrote the book, obviously. But I know I remember drinking some Jameson, which I drank too much of because I love Irish whiskey. It was, was that Baldwin's drink as well? Was he a Jameson? Uh, he's a Johnny Walker black guy. Johnny Walker guy, okay. Yeah, so, but I, I just kept saying, I'll be damned. Now my baby has to go through this. Yeah. I'll be damned. Yeah. It's interesting, the, the, the no name in the street is from from Job. Um, do you want to tell us what it says? Do you want me to read it to you? Please read it. Read it, yeah. It, it's talking about God will punish the wicked. Um, mm-hmm. So here's James Baldwin in the aftermath of, of of all these horrors coming forward with this book, which is not highly critically acclaimed because of the criticism that 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 he, he sort of keeps on his friends. And we'll talk about um, democracy in black in, in a minute sure. because, because you followed <laughs> suit a little bit. Um, um, and he's talking about the, the, what God will do to the wicked. And so he has this book, uh, No Name in the Street. And, and, and Job, uh, 1817 to 1818 says, the roots beneath him will dry up the wicked. The roots beneath him will dry up and the branches above him will wither away. The memory of him perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. 
He is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. And so there, there's Baldwin, you know, saying, you know, stick with it in a sense and, yeah. and, and, and we'll chase the light. We'll chase him into the darkness and out, and out of, out of the world. But it takes, yeah. pers- it takes, it, it takes a lot of perseverance. You know, by the time he, in his last interview with Quincy True, um, he's exhausted, Michael. And he says, um, you can only go to Texas so much, so so many times. And at the end of his life, he said, I felt like a broken engine saying the same thing over and over and over again. But he said, I was there. I witnessed the choice America made. I saw it. I told them. And, and what I tried to do and begin again was to echo that insight in my own words and apply it to our own times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right, though. To bear witness in the aftertimes is hard on the soul. Yeah, you know, it is, you know, because you find yourself for, for, you know, for a period of time um, uh, misfitted. Baldwin, you think about it, the, 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 the Baldwin that I focus on in the book is the later Baldwin. Right. So by the 19... Last, the less popular one. If you yeah. Want. And you think by 1980, this, the 80s, this is Cosby. This is Cosby America. Right. This is the Cosby show. This is the ascendance of the black middle class. This is, you know, you know, Clinton is, 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 is take, is going to take root. And, and, you know, you have this expansion and Baldwin is still screaming. Right, not Clinton, but Baldwin is still screaming right at the top of his lungs um, about um, uh, what's going on, you know, because he sees that folk are taking the bribe. The last book is the evidence of things not seen, which is about the child, Atlanta child murders, and he's saying, "What happens when our babies are dying and black folk hold the reins of power?" It's almost like a, a prophetic account of Barack Obama speaking. A black mayor and a black sheriff is Baltimore is burning. Yeah. Right. So Baldwin is thinking that, but people don't want to hear it at all. You know, I made a mistake. It's not Clinton, but you know, the, the Bush years and the Reagan and the Bush years. He's, but this is Cosby America, black Americans. Like, yeah. He, he, or you put him at a crossroads, right? He, you say he's like the blues singer at a crossroads. He stands on the junction at this junction. And um, he can, yeah. he or society can go in um, multiple directions that it, it represents sort of an opportunity for there to be uh, a, a new America uh, to grasp a new way of, of being among the darkness of the hour in which we find ourselves. But we always seem to take the, the, the wrong path. <laughs> it seems that way, right? We, 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 we double down on our comforts and our illusions. You know, when uh, Barack Obama was in office, everyone was so excited. Folk were getting their invitations to the White House. And I was witnessing carnage as a result of the Great Recession. I was witnessing carnage. Devastated the black middle class. Devastated. Lost every, every gain in the 1980s just wiped out all of them. In some ways, right? All the wealth gained in the 80s just gone away. And people were still shouting at the top. Of the, they're so excited about a black man in the White House. Um, and you couldn't say anything critical. But to bear witness 
in the aftertimes to bear witness. You just have to take the hit. So, you know, I, I, I wrote democracy in black and, you, you took the, you took, uh, you took a, well, talk a little bit about, talk about, um, talk about Democracy in Black, um, an earlier book, and then talk a little bit about your view of Hillary Clinton's 2016 candidacy. These things sort of come together, and I think that you and I aligned, when I read it, I thought, aha, uh-huh, we aligned politically on, on, on this, so and since you're a better talker, you can, <laughs> no. you can you can you can talk a little bit about this democracy in black and and your 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 initial take on the Clinton um, candidacy and where you stood on it. Right. So democracy in black was my attempt to respond to how race continued to distort and disfigure American democracy, even with a black man in the White House. You know, I I provocatively described uh, Barack Obama as a Melvillian confidence man selling the snake oil of hope and change. But this was still, you know, remnants of the Democratic Leadership Conference and its politics, right? Which, you know, DLC comes into existence as a response to Reaganism. It's a capitulation to Reaganism in some ways, right? And as the Great Recession had unleashed this unimaginable carnage across the country, Black America was devastated. So the black middle class and black black elite they were they were shouting because they were getting invited to the White House. Everyday ordinary black folk were just suffering, losing their homes, losing their jobs, uh, losing ground, losing their footing. And so I gave I offered this concept called the value gap that American society is organized along the lines of this belief that that some people white people are valued more than others, and that valuation evidences itself in our habits and is driven by white fear. Um, and so that became the basis of kind of describing a new kind of politics where I wanted to insist that we, taking the language from King who gets it from Nietzsche, right, a revolution of values, right? We needed to change our orientation to politics and that involved changing our relationship to the Democratic Party. And I was saying to myself, you know, I, I'm a, I love Jose Saramago, uh, uh, the Nobel Prize winning uh, novelist, um, and he wrote a novel, Blindness, and the follow-up was entitled Seeing. And that the heart of seeing is this moment where there's an election and 90% of the ballots are blank. And they said, it must have been a mistake. So they hold another election and the same thing happens. And it becomes this allegory because in response to people saying the choices are no choices at all, so we won't choose, the totalitarian underpinnings of democratic society evidences themselves, evidences itself and overruns the society. Right. So it's, it's this really, really powerful story. So I always like, look, if the democratic party doesn't speak to our carnage directly, if they treat us like cattle chewing cud, then we shouldn't vote for it. We should vote down ballot. Um, and Clintonism for me, uh, was and remains villainous in terms of the world that we inhabit. So it was very controversial for me to offer up this notion of the blankout campaign. Um, I tried to qualify it once Trump was elected. But, you know, to be honest with you, Michael, I thought when the Republicans nominated Donald Trump, I actually thought we had a chance to break the back of Clintonism in the Democratic Party because I didn't believe white America would elect someone so obviously unqualified to be the president of the United States. 
And as I write and begin again, as a lifelong reader of Baldwin, I should have known better. Yeah. Uh, I should have known better. Well, I'm the child of, of, a, of a father who never voted for a major party uh, candidate. He always voted um, either social. He voted, he voted, I think, for Dick Gregory once. He voted for Barry Commoner once. Wow. When I was young, it was Norman Thomas. Um, yes. So I, 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 as, when I read this, I thought, you know, he, he's, he's smiling. He's smiling. <laughs> you hit it. Nobody, you know, onto the uh, Sanders maybe, but nobody's onto the fact that this is pretty much the same old, same old. And, and you're not going to break the, the paradigm um, with this sort of incrementalist thinking. You know, I keep saying to my friends, if the age of Reagan is collapsing, if it has revealed itself to be bankrupt, then the Democratic Party that was created in response to it is bankrupt too. Um, And that's not a very uh, popular formulation these days. Well, it depends on where you sit on the political <laughs> spectrum. You know, if, if, if you're, you're reading The Intercept and listen, getting your news from Democracy Now! and, and Glenn Greenwald, it's pretty popular stuff. <laughs> well, <laughs> if, you're getting it, if you're getting it elsewhere, maybe not so. If you're, if you're a pundit on MSNBC, it's not a very popular <laughs> formulation. Well, can you can you fl- you mentioned something that I'd like you to to flesh out because I, I sure. you mentioned it in passing but I wanna I wanna sort of write it in in bold um, because I think it also like the big lie is the uh, is at the heart of 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 the matter and that is the value gap and and uh, you know Doctor Doctor King said. It's not what they call you, it's what you answer to. And April Ryan says in her book at Mama's Knee, Mothers and Race in Black and White, that she says, unless you prepare your children, they will live to the expectations of the world in which they are being raised. The most fundamental, you have to teach them to value themselves. And I, I raise this because Baldwin I want you to talk about Baldwin at, and, and the SNCC conference where where he he is talking to the students, maybe not even SNCC, and maybe pre-SNCC at Howard University. Um, and he's saying to them, if you don't believe what they're saying about you, if, they, if you don't believe the names they're calling you, I will I will never let you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so remember you know, this? Six- yeah, it's 63, and it's, it's SNCC. It, these are the students who are the Howard contingent of SNCC, and they're in an apartment after a conference, uh, got their bootleg uh, scotch. Uh, Muriel Tillinghast is there. Michael Thelwell is there. Stokely Carmichael's there. Um, and they chop it up until the sun comes up. And Baldwin makes this point because you're, it goes all the way back to Notes of a Native Son in some ways. Because what happened to Baldwin's stepfather is he believed what the world said about him, right? That the world conspires to, 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 to get you to concede to the idea that you're less than, that you ought not to be valued, that your voice isn't as valuable, that your, your intellect isn't as sharp, uh, that you are the recipient of charity and the like. And so he says to those young people, 
And I begin chapter one with this story because I'm ending with young people at the end of the book, right? If you don't believe, don't believe what they say about you, right? And Baldwin puts, parses, parses it this way, Michael. The moment black folk step out, stop acting according to, the, to, to white people's expectations of them, we're talking revolution. That's Baldwin's point. So there's this insistence on a certain kind of individuality that disrupts the racial order of, thing, of things. So what does it mean for me to tell my child, you know, you got a crown above your head. I'm going to name you Langston Ellis. Well, why you name me Langston Ellis then? You're named after Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison. Whenever you say your name, you have a tradition beneath your wings. Or when the cops come and they, they, they drop the kid off down the street and here we are living an upper middle class life and my son, I scream upstairs, Langston, come downstairs. And he runs downstairs in sneakers and pajamas looking like a typical suburban teenager. And I say, look down the street. And he says, oh my God, they got him. And I said, you know what? They wouldn't bring you home to me. I would have to come to jail to pick you up. Yeah. Trying to teach them how to navigate the world but at the same time, teach them not to believe what the world says about them. That's right. the conundrum. That's the well, that's right. And and Baldwin says in that late night apartment meeting or at the at the SNCC conference in '63 says, "If you promise, you will never, ever accept any of the many derogatory, degrading, and reductive definitions." That this society has already has ready for you, then I, Jimmy Baldwin, promise I shall never betray you. Yeah, and he never did. No, he didn't. Um, and, he, and he suffered. And he, and he suffered for it because a lot of white friends who were also pleased with him in um, Notes of a Native Son and, and, and the like, this touched a little bit too close to home. Did yeah, he? you know, when Black Power emerged, Baldwin refused to condemn them. He, he obviously he was critical of what he called that mystical black bullshit, but he, you know, he never, he wrote when Stokely Carmichael, when governors were calling for his execution as a traitor, he wrote the essay Black Powell, uh, right. in defense of Stokely. Um, he raised when, when, um, Eldridge Cleaver described him as, you know, this homosexual who desired to be, uh, to desire sexual relations with white men. And when Eldridge Cleaver, dismissed him, um, and he himself had to flee, Baldwin was leading the way and trying to raise funds for it, right, uh, in so many ways. Um, he should have won the Nobel. Yeah. But, but Jimmy saw early on those New York intellectuals who were so important to his own growth. He saw so many white liberals do what they did during the McCarthy era. He saw what they did when they threw their friends under the bus, how they lacked courage, and he never lost sight. He never forgot what he witnessed during the Mark McCarthy era. Never. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is this kind of sense that um, he's just as critical of the white liberal as he is of, of the white conservative. He's actually even more so. Well, <laughs> it, it was so interesting in reading that, I told you in preparing 
<laughs> in, in climbing the mountain up to my conversation with you, I, I spoke to, to to Don Lemon and to, to April Ryan and to Bagari Sellers, all of whom are part of my education. And, and Don Lemon writes in his book, This is the Fire, many who consider themselves woke are still part of the problem. They mask their deeply embedded proclivities of racism into well-intentioned efforts to keep it from spreading. But when it comes down to actually solving the problem, they're no more helpful than, than the denialist. And um, another, you know, another uh, D'Angelo, uh, she writes, white liberals cause the most daily damage to people of color. Not only do these people fail to see their complicity, but they take a self-serving approach to ongoing anti-racism efforts. To the degree that white progressives think that they have arrived, they'll put all their energy in making others see that they've arrived. You know, it's hanging a Black Lives Matter uh, poster from your window, but still not in my backyard. Right. Les, yeah, we don't want to we don't want to impact the way in which uh, schools, uh, the demographics of schools in Manhattan. Remember those debates in New York? And these are the same people who will vote Democratic every year. But no. You know, so this is, this is, I mean, so Baldwin and, and, and Don and, and Robin, they're right in this regard. So this is how, you know, this is those, those who view racial equality or racial justice as a philanthropic enterprise. Yeah. Right. They view it as an act of charity. Um, and that is just as dangerous to my mind, or it is, it has dangerous consequences, just as the loud races have dangerous consequences. Yeah. You, you write that. Race is not seen as a, as a moral values, um, and unless it is, how do you how do you make progress? Yeah, you know, I wanted to insist on this point because sometimes people will say, "Well, we just need to focus on policy," which is true. This is not a binary; it's not oppositional. But at the heart of Baldwin's corpus and the heart of what I what I write about is who who do we take ourselves to be? Right. Who do we aspire to be? And that is a moral question. It is a moral question at its root. Um, and that can't simply be solved by policy alone. Um, Baldwin has that one. Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, I was going to say, and, and, and there and again, you see the, the, the faith-based uh, aspect of, of Baldwin's writing. It's certainly the... It, it's certainly rooted in, in, in his formation, uh, in his religious formation. It's certainly a part of his, his broad humanist vision. Right? As he says in his letter of resignation to the liberator, right? I want us to do something unprecedented, right? To, to construct a self without the need for enemies. I mean, that's just a beautiful formulation, you know, um, in, in every way imaginable, it seems to me. There are two things I wanted to ask you about on that on that last point. You know, the the, the Panthers um, too were were talking in terms of um, multiracial mm-hmm. uh, alliances. Their ten point program of ending poverty and health care and, and education and all that had had a, a multiracial component, similar to it seemed to me where Dr. King was toward the end on his poor people's campaign. And can you just um, 
educate me some because I, I I don't know that I understood completely what what Baldwin's view of race and class were. Oh yeah, he in, in in No Name in the Street he says he embraced. You know, he's an artist at the core at his core. So you know, at, in the early days with you you know with Eugene Worthy. Uh, he was running around with the Trotskyites, but that didn't quite settle with him because, you know, ideologically, Baldwin is fluid. In the end, in No Name in the Street, he says he embraces something akin to what Bobby Seale called Yankee Doodle Socialism. So he understands, remember, Baldwin grows up not in, in, in Harlem, not in Sugar Hill, where Du Bois is and, and the Harlem Renaissance folk. The, Baldwin grows up in the bottom. So he is in the hood. So the differences between Jimmy and King, for example, are not just simply temperamental, they're class differences. And so he's very much aware of, of class realities. Um, and so there is this sense in which he understands the relationship between um, uh, the idolatry of race, right, and the evils of greed, right? How capital in so many ways, right, destroys human being and human personality, right? The relentless pursuit of surplus value and what it does to the quality of life, you see. But he doesn't render that in any kind of strict ideological way. So you get this throwaway line in the name in the street, Yankee Doodle Socialism. Mm. What is that, a kind of democratic socialist vision? Right. Just like King's, but I think that's what he basically embraced but at the end of the day he's an artist and he's going to render it in in in, in the language of a writer and an artist mm. I, I want to take us out uh by reading you something and then having you give us your closing sure. statement if you will you write that baldwin provided the key to surviving and mustering the strength to keep fighting time after time and and the quote from baldwin is when the dream was slaughtered and all that love and labor seemed to come to nothing. We scattered. We knew where we had been, what we had tried to do, who had cracked, gone mad, died, or been murdered around us. Not everything is lost. Responsibility cannot be lost. It can only be abdicated. If one refuses abdication, one begins again. And so... Therein lies the title of your book, but but I think that's sort of the. I'm going to give you a valedictory. You know, <laughs> take us out. Um, yeah, yeah. On, on on this because we need us. We need hope. Yeah, Baldwin says hope is invented every day, and if hope is invented every day, that means we're trying to hold off despair every day, right? And so, in this moment, in those moments where it seems that darkness has, has won, right? You can resign yourself to the darkness or you can find the resources, the energy to pick yourself up and to push the boulder up the hill again. That in so many ways, to quote Talib Kweli, the beauty is found in the struggle itself. Right, So Baldwin wants to suggest, and he wants to insist, and I believe it wholeheartedly, this is why I end the book the way I do, right? that we have to continue to, 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 to fight, to begin again, to 
to start over, to do all that we need to do, because we've got to raise our babies. We've got to try to build a world where they can not only dream dreams, but they can make those dreams a reality. So beginning again is at the heart of this ongoing effort to build the world that we that we aspire to live in. To live in. That's, that's the key. So the book is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and Its Urgent Lessons for Our Times. It is a book of insight and hope and such an important read. And I want to thank you for writing it fundamentally. And thank you for joining me today on That Said. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. You take care and stay safe. Thank you. You too. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.